Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Cole, myself, and Dr. Fitz started this podcast. And welcome to part two of our two-part series this week on acute management of pelvic fractures featuring Dr. Shanja Vermulapali, as well as my co-resident, Dr. Barrett Hawkins. So without further ado, we hope you all enjoy this episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Yeah, so I think that was a great review of how to look at images. We talked about sacral dysmorphism, x-rays, CT scans. So we even spoke a little bit about pelvic binders and as far as sheeting. Um, what are some other, just thinking about, you know, the emergency, the emergent stabilization of these unstable, these patients that have these unstable pelvic injuries, what should our, what should we be on the lookout for? What should we, where should we be thinking as far as controlling the hemorrhage, you know, what is important as far as resuscitation and and these bleeding you know what is the most you know common places to, to bleed and, you know kind of what is when we're looking at hemorrhage and pelvic fractures how should we approach it yeah so in the volume expanding injuries volume containment is a hallmark of resuscitation and a lot of times that ends up being some sort of circumferential device whether it be a sheet or a binder and then of course active resuscitation per ATSLS protocol with fluids or blood or whatever may be required of that patient. We're starting to get more and more sophisticated with blood product management and thromboelastograms guiding correction of coagulopathy and all that. And that all just goes along with the more mechanical stuff that we talked about. So for volume expanding pelvic ring disruption, volume containment is key. And a lot of time that bleeding ends up being venous, which can be controlled by can volume containment and then tamponade as a result of that by reducing the volume of the true pelvis. Now, if they're not responding to that, then the algorithm afterwards usually ends up being interventional radiology. There's some controversy with that, which I think you actually get into a little bit. We can talk about that when it comes up. But interventional radiology is quite good for being able to stop some of these focal bleeds around the pelvis that are not so easily accessible. For the volume contracting or lateral compression type injuries, a lot of times the bleeding ends up being arterial and that is usually best managed by interventional radiology if they're not responding to uh, volume resuscitation in the way that people think they should be. So let's talk a little bit about the, the interventional radiologists and their role because they, especially at our institution, I know this is institution dependent, they have a pretty quick trigger as far as taking patients up and embolizing anything they can get uh, get an angio, uh, angiographic catheter towards. So, you know, do you, how do you feel about angiography for bleeds in general, arterial bleeds, venous bleeds, and, and what sort of complications does that invite, you know, in either the post-operative or the late setting? Yeah. So this is obviously a topic of quite a bit of study. And so I certainly think interventional radiology has a very important role in all of this. If someone has continued, has continued hemodynamic instability, you need to get control of that. And interventional radiology is a very elegant way to be able to reach some of these small vessels that we otherwise would not be so easily be able to reach. And so I think it's good. Um, the discrepancy between embolizing everything, like you said, versus selective embolization is obviously clinical judgment. 
Um, and it, it totally is patient to patient dependent and how well or how not well they may be doing. But the way to always think about all these things when you're treating traumatically injured patients is life, limb, function. And first off, it's preserving life. And so you do what you have to do in that acute setting to get control and get ahead of whatever is going on with the patient. And sometimes that leads to complications such as soft tissue complications with death of gluteal musculature and also some general urinary issues that can or cannot happen. And some of that's still in study, but it can potentially change what you may or may not want to do. I would say that personally, it doesn't really change what I want to do at all, but it may for some people, and that just may be personal experience with the complications they've had, but either way, these are still considerations to nothing, nothing that we do is benign. Everything has risk and everything has benefits. And those always need to be weighed on an individual basis. Right. And so, you know, we just mentioned, you know, these patients that came in, that come in hemodynamically unstable, you want to make sure you resuscitate them. That may consist of, you know, the, the blood platelets and FFPs in that one, one to one ratio, um, you know, making sure you're training, you know, different, you know, lab stuff like their lactates or base deficits, hemoglobin. Uh, and then just like you just said, some patients, you know, that may need, you know, angiography or embolization if they're, you know, losing a lot of blood and they're still hemodynamically unstable. We know that the most, more, more common is cause of bleeding in these fractures are going to be venous bleeding from kind of that, that presacral plexus, but you can also have arterial bleeders as well with some of the most common, I know they asked, asked this question, kind of that superior gluteal artery, if it is an arterial bleed most commonly it's a, it's a venous bleed. Uh, but so the so, most common time that a superior gluteal neurovascular bundle is injured is when there's a fracture that involves a greater sciatic notch. And that makes sense from proximity. Yeah. I think they, uh, I, I swear, I, I feel like I've seen that on a question too. Um, they show that and then they say, you know, pretty much exactly what you just said. So everybody listening, Dr. Mulapali is dropping gems right now. I hope you're taking notes. Or if you're driving, I hope you just go and repeat and replay the last 30 seconds and get some more good info. Now, yeah, and so another thing on the same topic of acute resuscitation, mm-hmm. Route always had a very simple but effective and very elegant in its simplicity algorithm for how to treat these patients. And it's pack, wrap, warm, fill, squirt, and divert. So pack open wounds, wrap a patient if they have a volume expanding pelvic ring injury to contain their volume, warm the patient because of cold, the potential for cold coagulopathy, fill them up or tank them up with fluid or blood products, whatever may be required for the specific patient. If they're not responding to that, then squirt them with angiography and, and embolize the bleeds that may be contributing to their overall status. And then if they have bowel or abdominal, intra-abdominal injury that may be causing some of these issues, then they usually require diverting colostomy or something of that sort, some sort of bowel surgery to get control of what's going on. Okay. And since we kind of just mentioned it, you're just kind of talking about pelvic packing or kind of are acutely managing these patients. Can you kind of touch on pelvic packing? Now, I, you know, in my very, very limited short residency experience, I haven't had the the chance to, you know, do pelvic packing in the ED. Is it something that you see done a lot? Do you do it? Um, and if you do do it, how do you do it? So absolutely not. Is it something that I routinely do? Um, the A lot of this literature comes out of Denver Health, where Trey Martin trained. And they do have a, they have a system 
of how this is supposed to go and it works for them. But it generally involves a coordinated effort with the orthopedic traumas, the general, general surgery trauma staff, just place an external fixator to get some volume containment, and then open pelvic packing. I was trained and I believe this is unnecessary almost all the time. Um, a lot of times, actually, no, not a lot of times, almost always, you can control what's going on without having to do this open packing. If you think about it, all you're really doing is you're converting something that's closed in an open injury. And if you, and you're subjecting them to an extra surgery that they may or may not really need if you follow the algorithm of what we just talked about previously. Um, the other thing that for sure does not work is if you pack against a not contained pelvic ring because you're not really packing into a contained volume at all. And so you need to have some sort of stability if you're going to do that. So whether it be external fixation or acute internal fixation um, to get some volume containment because packing works from applying pressure. And if you have a totally unstable helmet pelvis that you're packing against, all you're going to do is continue to expand that volume and be fairly ineffective with your packing. Okay. And since we're talking about, you know, kind of just some things acutely that you can do, is there any indication for skeletal traction in, in you know, in the acute management of these, uh, in these patients that may have, you know, a bad vertical shear, you know, pelvic injury or, or anything? Is there any time where you'd say we need to go ahead and put it as distal femur skeletal traction or proximal tibia, whatever your, you know, whatever your cup of tea is, but some type of skeletal traction? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very good point. So if there's any vertical instability that is radiographically obvious, I think that deserves skeletal traction. My preference is distal femoral traction, um, if possible, because then you're not pulling through the knee joint that you unnecessarily don't need to do so. Not to, and also to mention, if there's associated injuries around the knee that are not so obvious, pulling through the proximal tibia can only reveal them and cause further injury potentially. So I prefer distal femoral traction for any pelvis that has vertical instability. And that makes sense. It's the reduction moment that you need. And a lot of times I'll leave this in place for the operating room as well, depending on what it is that I need to do. And sort of along that same vein, you know, how do you feel about pelvic X fixes that I know that they were very popular once and, and then sort of lost popularity. And now they're still kind of out there. Do you feel that there are indications where they can be helpful? And, and if so, could you just kind of walk us through how you might go about putting one on? Yeah, absolutely. They still do have some value. And I think a lot of times this ends up being the patient that you're called about that's already going to the operating room with the general surgery trauma sur surgeons. And there's an unsale pelvic ring that needs something, but you don't really have the tools or the time or the patient doesn't have the time for you to proceed with internal fixation, but you need to do something to give them some stability and then also give the general surgeon access to what it is that they need to do. And so you can use a binder and you can put it low, but you can also use an external fixator and there's different types. And so you could either put on what I refer to as a low anterior pelvic external fixator, which is pins to the AIIS or super acetabular corridor or you can also place iliac crest pins. There's lots of different methods, but either one, either one, you're trying to get some containment of the pelvic ring. And so if you're gonna place a low anterior frame, which I'll go through with y'all, 
a lot of people use OptTrader Outlet View. I don't really use this at all routinely because all it really helps you do is mark where your pin's going to go, but then you can't really do anything you need to do because the CM is right in your way. Yeah. And so if you are facile with the OptTrader Inlet View, which will show you the pelvic brim pathway, the AIIS pathway, and also the AIIS on the profile, then you can use that as an iliac oblique to give you the medial lateral on the obturator inlet view, and then the cranial caudal and the iliac oblique view to do everything you need to do safely. And so the obturator outlet view for me is a wasted step. But you can do it if you want to, and you can mark the skin and then maybe that'll help you um, as far as being accurate with however you choose to do this. My method for doing this is what I was taught by my mentor and it's a percutaneously inserted two millimeter wire to find the start point. It's oscillated into bone. The skin's then incised around the wire. I use a four or five cannula to drill bit to create the opening pathway. And then after that, it plays a blunt pin in this pathway up to where the threads are all contained. And usually the trajectory of this is of course contained within the pathway but also placing a pin somewhat cranial to caudal will allow for a frame that allows a patient to sit up and not obstruct flexion at the hip. Yeah. And, and does that have anything to do, I guess, which is versus, you know, the iliac crest versus super acetabular um, pins or AIIS. What about mechanical stability? Is there any difference between the two? So the reduction moment, a lot of times, if it's an incomplete injury, of course, is internal rotation. If it's a complete injury and you just rotate based on the pins, it ain't going to work for you very well, no matter what you do. But the super acetabular pins are placed in a way that give you, I think, more control over each hemipelvis. The iliac crest pins are very popular in the days of when fluoroscopy wasn't quite as sophisticated because you can feel the iliac crest and you can put these in in the ER. There's some really good videos from the old days of shock trauma where Tom Higgins or the Utah and other people are putting in iliac crest pins in the ER because you can do it by feel. Yeah. yeah but if you think uh... about the vector of reduction, the crest pins are not as biomechanically advantageous as super acetabular pins. Yeah, and and I, and I think that's, that's I don't know if this tested on, but I always hear that 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 point brought up that you know the superacetabular pins are more mechanically stable, and I always always hear uh, you know the point brought up of the nerve that's that's affected. They can get you know thigh numbness due to that uh, lateral femoral nerve of the thigh being being close by. So that's another thing I've seen that that that's being asked a lot um, regarding those pins. Now, other things that, you know, that we looked and saw about, can we get your, what are your thoughts on the infix or, you know, that subcutaneous anterior pelvic fixation? Do you use that? Are you a fan? Are you not a fan? What is it? Like, what, what are we, what is this whole thing? I have seen it used. I am not a fan. I do not use it. <laughs> and it's a solution to a problem I don't have, in my opinion. <laughs> All right. What, um, what's, what problem is that? So it's an X-fix, but all you're doing is tunneling it subcutaneously. And that means that you're going to have to go take this out. So every patient you put this on, unless you feel like leaving this in and having it become prominent, which it can ha which can happen, 
you're buying this patient another surgery that they may not need if you can fix everything stably with internal fixation. And I don't know that this is really that much more stable than an external fixture. The benefit of it is that you don't have exposed pin sites. But the right. downside of it is, is that you now have a subcutaneous external fixator. Right. And then I, I think these, these patients also, there's a high um, occurrence of heterotopic ossification that happens, you know, in, in patients that have these infixes as well. Yeah, as, also there, and like you mentioned, lateral femoral cutaneous nerve palsy, yep. femoral nerve palsy, all these things are described complications of these devices. Don't get me wrong. They can work but you can use other things. You can, a lot of people also will use these as reduction aids and I will routinely use an X-Fix as a reduction aid and then take it off. I think y'all have probably seen me leave on exactly zero pelvic external fixators post-operatively. Everything I do is used for reduction and then it comes off because I fix everything stably with internal fixation to the utmost of my abilities. Yeah, what about that one guy that we left? Oh, I'm just kidding, no, we didn't do that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> and so just along the same vein, but now coming more out of medieval times, how do you feel about the C-clamp? And do you feel that that is something that could be placed uh, in the emergency department as it was originally described? Um, yeah, so this was popular at some point, And then as you, at most institutions, it's not really so popular anymore. And as Bear kind of alluded to, it, the placement of this is difficult. Whether And I think in the ER, it'd be very difficult to place safely. And a lot of times the complications, what would happen is that these tines would enter the greater sciatic notch, which is not a place you want to be if you are not sure that you're actually there. Um, the reason this came about is because all of these other temporizing measures that we talked about are anterior. They are external fixators or infixes or whatever it is that have fixation that's anterior. But in the complete injuries where there is no intact posterior hinge of any sort, reduction or internal rotation of the anterior component only of the injury will distract the posterior ring. And so the C-clamp was meant to combat that, is that it was these times replaced posteriorly along the posterior ilium to be able to gain some control of the un completely unstable posterior pelvic ring. Once again, don't use it. Haven't ever used it. Don't plan on ever using it. <laughs> Um, but there sure are we some... have one in our hospital. Yeah, yeah I've never seen one. Yeah, we had one actually in Houston, but we never broke it out. It was just there from previous people that were that did use it at some point. Um, there are some things you can do to combat the displacement that I talked about in these complete pelvic ring injuries, though. So, if there is no intact posterior hinge, so in like an APC three type pattern, then most the technical problem that most people make or sorry error that most people make is that you place the pins anteriorly and then you use the pins themselves to internally rotate and reduce the anterior ring but that then gaps the posterior ring as a result of that but if you actually notice if you put those patients in a sheet or some or binder previously their reduction was probably better in that circumferential device and that's just a result of the entirety of the pelvis is contained by a circumferential compressive device instead of just these anterior pins that you're using can now rotate the entirety of a helmet pelvis only based on the anterior component. So you can leave these people in their sheet or binder, cut some holes, 
then apply your frame and just hold that in the reduced position that it's already in. Because the frame itself is just holding a reduction. But if you use the frame itself to reduce, you're, it makes sense that in a completely unstable injury that you would gap the back while reducing the front. Just kind of wrapping up here. So what patients that you know have these pelvic injuries are you treating non-operatively? And then what is your non-operative treatment? So patients that have stable pelvic rings will be non-operatively treated. And so the ways to determine whether they're stable or not, of course, is the controversy. So there's some radiographic markers of instability, displacement, comminution, some fracture obliquities. Those patients have radiographic markers of instability, but the biggest things that you can do is your physical examination. How much they hurt whenever you press on their pelvis or how unstable they feel in your hands if they collapse and crumble in your hands and they're probably unstable. And if you can do that with your hands, you can only imagine what their body's able to do when they're trying to mobilize. And so those injuries get fixed. Complete injuries get fixed, whether they be SI joint disruptions or sacral fractures, because if you think about spine fractures, three column injuries of the spine are unstable by nature. So I think about the sacrum the same way. The sacrum is really the caudal extension of the axoskeleton. And so if it's a complete injury, that is inherently unstable and warrants stabilization. But the patients that have markers of stability, their pain is not so much that you don't think they can, that they can tolerate non-operative management and then can mobilize and work with physical therapy to the point where not have a treatment can be pursued or the patients that get it. The other thing that I do is after, if I'm going to treat someone non-operatively, I get AP inlet outlet pre-ambulation plain foam x-rays and then post-ambulatory or post-mobilization AP inlet outlet plain foam x-rays to compare them to ensure that there's no interval displacement as they've been mobilizing with therapy. And if they're all holding true, then they, that can continue. And I usually will see those patients back sooner. I usually see people that are treating non-operatively back clinic in one week with repeat x-rays and continue that for a week or two. And then once things are holding, you can space them out. And for most times, those patients are going to be touchdown weight-bearing or toe-touch weight-bearing on the side of their posterior ring injury um, for six weeks. And then after that, I will progress them, of course, as they are, if they are, progressing how I think they should be. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, and then, you know, the key things of that, some things which you're just saying is if you're treated non-operatively and you allow them weight bearers, you, you, you get x-rays afterwards just to make sure that there's no displacement or anything of, you know, of the, of the fracture, or if they can tolerate it, you know, just like you're saying, kind of put them in a, through a, a weight bearing trial and see, uh, and see kind of how they do. Uh, and one more thing to that uh, I just really quickly wanted to touch on is an EUA. Do you, is there a role for EUA in any kind of questionable injuries or do you do them? I know here we, we haven't done too many, but I know other institutions do EUAs a lot for these pelvises, uh, for these pelvic ring injuries. So actually for any of these patients where we're indicating for surgery because of pain or if there's some questionable instability, and if they're in, their imaging is not radiographically obviously unstable or displaced, I do an EOA on all of these people before I fix them. 
And so that's a good way to not only feel the instability, but you can also then correlate what you feel with the fluoroscopic imaging. And if they're unstable, then that gives you every piece of information you need, I think, to then say that they need to be stabilized. So I do think there's a role for EUA, but I also think that you can predict a lot of this based on the imaging and what the patient tells you prior to getting in the operating room. If you do follow that practice of examining all of these pelvises before you fix them, there will be some that surprise you. And there's some that even if they have regular markers of instability, may be very stable. And then at that point, you can make a decision. You have more information. And if really you don't think they warrant operative fixation, then you can wake the patient up and tell them as such. And then you've gotten more information that tells you that this is stable. But once again, I tried my best to ensure that the ones that are going to be subjected to general anesthesia, I think need to be fixed. And I'm just confirming what I think I already know. Ah, okay. Yeah, I, I like it. Definitely, definitely, you know, do these before every case. And, and just like you said, you can use that to kind of justify that these definitely need to be fixed. You can definitely see the, the instability, especially on x-rays when you get a, you, know, you get an AP inlet or outlet after you do whatever force, whether you're compressing through the greater trochanters or doing a push-pull and vertically unstable uh, limbs to see, you know, the amount of vertical displacement. I don't know how often that one's getting done, um, but not very nonetheless, often at all. Yeah, yeah. I, but, I read it and I was like, I don't know how, how often that people are actually doing that part. Yeah, the most common one would be the compressive exam, and that usually is best done on an inlet view because that'll show you the displacement of the anterior ring, which will correlate with global pelvic ring instability if there's displacement. The other type of examination or anesthesia is for those people that have questionable um, extra rotation type injuries that are not so displaced. And so people talk about a frog leg or a lotus type position or figure four position of the limb, then actually rotate the hemipelvis and see if there's displaced, interval displacement with that positioning. Yeah, perfect. And um, I, again, I, I think this was a, a great talk, great episode. We went over a good amount. We went over, uh, we went over what to look for on x-rays. We went over the classification systems and the mechanism of injury. We talked about acute management. We talked about how to look at CT scans, how to evaluate for single dysmorphism, EUAs, uh, transfusions. We, you know, we talked about sheeting. Uh, Dr. Pali, I think this was a you know an excellent talk. Uh, you and Dr. Hawkins being on as well, Dr. Hawkins. I think we did did a great job uh, going through everything. Now, um, at the end of our episodes, we always ask if you if, if our, our listeners have you know if you want to put out any way for our listeners to follow you, reach out to you, or anything you know if you have social media handles you want to throw out there, go for it. If not, no problem. Uh, but, you know, anything that you want to share with the people? Yeah, I mean, anyone is more than happy, or I'm more than happy for them to email me questions. I think you're, Cody, if you want to supply them with my email address, that is totally fine. Sure. Um, I, I, I do not have an orthopedic specific social media to give y'all. Um, no but worries. email, I'm more than happy to communicate with y'all. And if y'all want to talk on the phone about something, I'm also more than happy to do that and discuss with y'all at any time. Perfect. And any, any last words that you think people should take away regarding, you know, pelvic ring injuries and kind of acutely managing them? Yeah, I think the biggest thing is, there's a lot of information. 
And these are complex injuries and usually sick patients. So just pay attention to the details and remember all, try and remember as much as, of this stuff as you can. And just remember that you won't remember all of it, but the more you think about it and the more you see these patients and the more you read about it, the more you're gonna know and the more you're gonna keep taking away from each time. So learning doesn't stop ever, right? You keep learning, we're all humbled by experiences on a daily basis and that's just how it's gonna be for the rest of our lives until we quit. And that's normal and that's a good thing. You want to keep progressing. You want to keep learning. And there's lots of literature to be read about this kind of stuff. And go read what, go read as much as you can and figure out the stuff that makes sense to you and the stuff that doesn't make sense to you. Just because it's out there in literature doesn't mean it's all right. It's just what someone decided to put out there. So read and be critical of everything and make sure that all these things make sense and then do what makes sense for your patients and treat them how you'd like to be treated. I love it. Gems. I can say I will uh, certainly will never forget the uh, radiographic hallmarks of sacral dysmorphism. So <laughs> I thought that shining was a way bear. Oh, uh, I thought it was. I haven't had to think <laughs> about that in a long time. So uh, you know. Oh yeah, you've been on uh, hand right now, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, ask about the pulley systems, though. We'll crush it. Well, man. I definitely don't know that anymore on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Dr. Bumul Paulia, I appreciate you again for taking your time out. You too, Dr. Hawkins, or otherwise known as Bear, I appreciate both of you guys for taking your time out and coming on the podcast. And for people listening, uh, thank you all for listening again. Hope you hit the subscribe button and we will see you again next week for another episode.